0: uh, with a picture that has Job's wife in it and I want to invite you all when the time comes to read that line. Doable? I think so.
1: Once upon a time in the land of Uz there lived a man named Job. He was blameless and upright. A man who feared God and turned away from evil. One day the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh, and the adversary came along with them.
2: Where have you come from?
3: From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it.
2: Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil.
3: Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a fence around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face.
2: Very well. All that he has is in your power. Only do not stretch out your hand against him personally.
1: After that, Sabians- stole all of Job's 500 yoke of oxen and his 500 donkeys, killing all the servants who were tending them. Then lightning struck and killed all his 7,000 sheep and their herders. Then Chaldeans stole his 3,000 camels and killed his servants tending them. Lastly, a great wind knocked down the house where Job's seven sons and three daughters were feasting killing them all. In each case, one servant escaped death and came and reported to Job, arriving so close together that one was not finished before another brought more disastrous news. Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on his face and worshiped.
0: Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. Blessed be the name of the Lord.
1: In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. Another day, the Son of God came to present themselves before Yahweh, and the adversary also came to present himself before Yahweh.
2: Where have you come from?
3: From going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it.
2: Have you seen my servant Job? There is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still persists in his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him for no reason.
3: Skin for skin, all that people have they will give to save their lives but stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face.
2: Very well. He is in your power. Only spare his life.
3: So the
1: adversary went out from the presence of Yahweh and inflicted loathsome sores on Job. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, Job took a poster with him to scrape himself, and sat among the ashes. Joe's wife came to him. Do
2: you persist in your
3: integrity? First God and die.
0: You speak as any foolish woman would speak. Shall we receive good from the hand of God and not receive the bad?
1: And all this, Job, do not sand with his lips.
0: Thank you. Thank you for uh, participating. Have you heard of the Brick Bible, the Brick Testament? Is anybody familiar? If you go online, it is a visual presentation of virtually the entire Bible using Legos. Uh, Both the Old Testament and uh, the New Testament, uh, scene after scene after scene. It is not necessarily child-friendly just because it uses uh, Lego bricks and uh, It sometimes has a certain cynical approach in how it titles episodes and things like that. So just just warning you on that. But I end up using it because it portrays scenes that you just can't find other artwork for. Uh, for. For whatever reason, there are some scenes that have not been painted. And our first scene today is one of them. It's really hard to find anybody having done any kind of sketch or art or photography of this scene of the heavenly court where literally the sons of God, what does that mean? We're not sure. Does it mean angels? Does it mean other deities, powers? We're not sure. But the sons of God come and present themselves in the court of Yahweh, the proper name for God. And there is, you heard it, an interloper In the scene, uh, whom we refer to as the adversary. You can tell he's the interloper because he's got a sour look on his green face. Uh, That's how you can tell. Uh, And uh, I I need to say the adversary, and I need to use a Hebrew word. In in Hebrew, the adversary is ha, the satan, adversary, adversary, right? Ha, satan, the adversary. Now, that particular character, that particular role evolves through the years, but mostly between the Old and New Testament, and eventually becomes a proper name, Satan, or, as we say in Baptist, Satan. Satan. Um, in the Old Testament, it is almost always the adversary, the adversary, two times where it is a proper name. And uh, so this adversary comes, and when Yahweh sees the adversary, uh, Yahweh uh, brags about Job. Have you seen my servant Job? Consider my servant Job. There's nobody like him. And repeats kind of a formula about how he fears God and is righteous in everything. You know in life, Really, it is rarely good to set up very high expectations for yourself, for other people. There is a certain burden that comes with living up to a good reputation. And in some ways, it's probably just better to let people think a little lower of you than you would prefer. But nonetheless, Yahweh, the Lord, God, brags on Job. Unique in the earth, full of righteousness, fearing God. And the adversary, being an adversary, comes up with a response. Well, Job is privileged, right? Uh, people who live a privileged life, of course they're going to think that God is on their side. Of course they're going to be righteous and, and uh, you know, live in a way that is in accord. But if his privileges evaporate, if they disappear, if harm is done to him, you can bet he is going to curse you for it. And the Lord basically says, go for it. And so suffering ensues. Uh, Some of it is human suffering. Uh, Sabaeans and Chaldeans, as you heard, show up and wreak all kinds of havoc, stealing thousands of animals, killing all kinds of servants. Uh, Some of the suffering might be uh, natural, might be divine. It's not quite clear. The fire of God could be a reference to lightning, but it comes and it destroys things. And then lastly of all, Uh, Job's ten children, seven sons, three daughters, are having a big feast, a big party, and you heard, a wind blows down the walls and kills all of them. Everything is gone. And if we're going to be honest about how the story proceeds, all the things that Job had are gone or killed because God started it all by bragging on him, and then when God was confronted about that bragging permitted the suffering. Hmm? It is not, can we say at least, our preferred image of God. It's not what we generally think about when we think about how we like to think about God. Can I say that in this story, God seems vain and capricious? And if not uncaring, at least careless about Job and Job's well-being. At the simplest level, we are not used to the idea of seeing God and the adversary, whom we've come to see as a personification of evil, in the same place, kind of negotiating things, kind of bargaining about things. It strikes us odd. It seems maybe a little more like uh, those... um, rather uh, fickle Greek deities, uh, Greek mythology more than what we are used to in the Bible. In King Lear, Shakespeare wrote, as flies to wanton boys are we to the gods, they kill us for their sport. Is that what's going on here? Are these two supernatural beings sporting with one another, debating with one another, and Job is just the fallout. There's an African proverb that's more about human interaction, but it is uh, when, when, when the elephants fight, the grass suffers. Is that what's going on here? Look, it's a very ancient story, the book of Job. It may be one of the oldest stories that we have in the Bible and may even be older than the Bible. We're not sure what culture we might have inherited it from, but Job is not a name in Hebrew. It is not a name that we even necessarily know the meaning of, and we're told that he lives in the land of Uz, which might as well be Oz. Uh, because it's not a place we've ever heard of, right? So we already know that we're talking about uh, perhaps a fable, perhaps a a parable, a story that maybe has a a lesson, maybe it's an old campfire story, maybe it's something that's been told for centuries and centuries, even before it was written down. It is old in the basic story. As we have it, The beginning of the oldest part of the story is at the beginning of the book of Job. Chapters 1 and 2, which we heard, read, or at least summarized in what was shared with us. And the ending of the story in the book of Job as we have it doesn't come until chapter 42. Chapters and chapters later, there will be this resolution, kind of, of the story. So we're gonna wait a few Sundays before we think about that, but in the middle of that beginning and end of the old part of the book of Job, the old story, the fable, the parable, however you wanna look at it, there are a, a, a chapter after chapter after chapter that has been inserted by a Jewish writer living two, three, four, five centuries before Jesus. It is written in beautiful Hebrew poetry, and it is a debate about the nature of suffering, the cause of suffering, the possible purpose of suffering, or maybe even the possibility that suffering doesn't have a purpose. A debate about the place of God in suffering. It is considered by secular scholars to be one of the great poetic Philosophical works of art in world culture. I first did a deep dive study of the book of Job, taught by a Marxist professor at the University of Oregon uh, years ago. Um, Was an interesting way to think about scripture, I suppose. So uh, one of the questions that gets asked In this middle section, chapter 3 to 41, is the question, is God capricious, uncaring, or careless? A lot of questions, the answers may be a little more difficult to come by. I'm warning you that uh, in terms of Job. But the questions are so important. One possible answer to that question, is God capricious, is God uncaring, is God careless? One answer may be, I think that is true, is that to people who have suffered cataclysmically, to people who have had profoundly deep and painful suffering, it can seem as though God does not care. Hmm? Whatever we understand about the bigger picture, when people have suffered profoundly, they can feel as though they have been abandoned. The psalmists say these things over and over. Scripture has laments that reflect on that feeling, of feeling unheard by God. And unless we have felt that feeling, I think we need to be careful about judging or correcting those who feel it. If you want to know what the the point of this sermon and the next four, that's probably it. If we don't know what it's like to suffer what people are suffering, we want to be careful about judging them or correcting them in the feelings that they have. Brothers and sisters, feelings are not moral. Feelings happen. Feelings are generated. Morality is choosing how we respond to our feelings and recognizing that some feelings make it harder and harder to respond. Sympathy, empathy. Well, it's not over for Job. All this stuff happens, and here's how it comes back to him. In each one of these four catastrophes, one slave is preserved and goes running to Job and says, only I have escaped to tell you. Four of them over. Only I, only I, and only I, and only I have escaped, 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 escaped to tell you, tell you, tell you, tell you. Well, thank you very much. hmm Sometimes life can feel that way. One thing piled upon another. And and grief, uh, uh, grief accumulates. It's not like a second grief replaces the first. Grief compounds, right? One of the hardest things about life is when we feel multiple stressors, multiple difficulties piling on, leaving us hardly any time To breathe. And only I have escaped to tell you. Job responds stoically. You know these lines. Naked I came into this world, and naked I shall leave it. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. That last part, we have songs about that. Right? We sing that last part. But we also know that attitude that precedes it, right? Started out in this life without anything, guess I'm going to leave it without anything. Hmm? It is stoic. It is literally stoic. The stoics were a philosophical school in Greek around the time this was all written. And they were suspicious of emotion. We need to be careful about our emotions. Maybe the narrator of this story approves of Job's response, thinks that Job's response is appropriate, that when all these things happen, the best that we can do is be philosophical about it, be stoic about it, be unemotional about it. But sometimes in our human tendency, to judge how people grieve, we will judge this response. I've heard people murmur, you know, she didn't even cry. Hmm? It can happen. Well, the story isn't over. Uh, it happens again, God brags again, Well, you see, all this stuff happened to Job, you made me do it. <laughs> Ponder, this is God saying, Satan made me do it, right? uh, You made me do it, you incited me to do it, but Job held up. The irony here is that Job's righteousness is not for Job. Job's righteousness is for apparently God's ego, kind of a stage deity, you know? Putting Job out there so that everybody can be impressed with how Job worships. Job uh, has not cursed me. All these things happened. You incited me to do it. Job has not cursed me. To which uh, Hasitan says, oh, big deal. Didn't touch him personally. The loss of all his property, the loss of all his employees, the loss of all his servants, the loss of all his children didn't touch him personally. But if you go after his health, ah, so of course God says, go for it. and uh, the adversary inflicts loathsome sores. That's what stuck with me, loathsome sores. That seems awfully graphic, you know. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Anybody here ever had shingles? That's what occurs to me, I hear it's horrible. He is personally afflicted, his health, the one remaining thing is gone. And then we are given another possible response, a non-stoic response, a non-philosophical response. Job's wife comes on the scene. Oh yeah, he's got a wife. And you heard what she said, you spoke what she said. Curse God and give up. Just get it over with. Hmm? Sometimes human beings will judge if somebody doesn't grieve adequately. She didn't even cry. But we also are very uncomfortable with expressions of anger, though we give men more permission to be angry, I think, than we give women. We're uncomfortable with anger. We're uncomfortable oftentimes with angry grief, with anger directed at God. And brothers and sisters, I understand the Christian temptation but oftentimes we are tempted to defend God rather than seek to comfort those who suffer. I get it. I get why that happens. I've done it myself. I think one of our messages here, one of our considerations, is that that is a temptation to be resistant. There is another writing. We don't know exactly when it showed up, but right around the time of Jesus, maybe uh, a few decades before a few decades after. We don't know if it's a Jewish writing or a Christian writing. It's called the Testimony of Job. And Job's wife gets much more fleshed out. It's no longer curse God and die. It's a whole story, in part, about how she responds to things. And one of the things she says is, My sons and daughters that I carried on my bosom and the labors and pains I sustained have been for nothing. See, if we aren't careful, we forget that all the losses that Job has had are the same losses That his wife has had. She has sustained everything that he has except for those loathsome sores. We would do well to be sympathetic to the angry response to suffering. Job says, You're just acting like a woman. Why? Because women, according to those philosophers, those Stoics, women were more emotional. Women tended towards emotion, and your emotions are suspect, you know. There's a reason why our word hysteria comes from an ancient word for womb. Because those who put the language together found women suspect when it came to emotions. And that is part of the difficulty When people suffer the same losses, there is a higher rate of divorce for couples who lose children, whose children die. Because it is a stress that they may meet differently, but they both have the stress. They both have the need for some kind of expression. But they may express it Differently. Job gets all philosophical again. Shall we accept only the good from God's hand and not the bad? It is difficult in life when people who care for one another suffer an impossibly hard grief. There's a tendency to then have friction with one another over that. It is a common human condition, not just a condition of family, though it is a family. It can be a condition of community. It can be a condition of workplace. It can be a condition of church. When we suffer collective loss, we can, be, we can have friction with one another because we are all suffering that change, that loss, that grief, that sense. And we can all begin... Doing that thing that human beings sometimes do. We deal with that more often than we realize. And if we can pause for a moment on our feelings, I am not good at this either. We might sometimes in life say, when somebody is having that friction with us, I wonder what they're grieving. I wonder what they've lost. I wonder what I'm grieving. I wonder what I have lost. These are the kind of questions that Job invites us to ask. I believe that. In the next few weeks, we're going to be exploring these questions. They are not easy questions. And one of the most awful things about difficult questions is they resist easy answers. And as much as you, I want easy answers. I want things to be resolved nicely. But these are difficult questions, but they are important questions. They are crucial questions about how we live together and how we get along and how we respond to people when they are hurting, even when their hurt might hurt us. It is the invitation that I think the book of Job offers us. The question today is, will we accept it?